0: Good afternoon, morning. I'm not real sure what what time it is, but uh, this is an exciting panel and I'd like to thank uh, the Capital Inc. guys so much for asking me to do it and all all of our panelists here for uh, agreeing to hang out with me for a little bit. Um, There there are facets of the Jones Act, but I, I think probably the one that people are the most familiar with, is what we're going to be talking about today. Um, and uh, so it. Uh, and also, uh, we were talking just a few minutes ago, uh, things have changed an awful lot in the last year uh, for the better um, as it relates to uh, the, the energy shipping in general within the Jones Act, but certainly the tanker market and the barge market. Uh, and we're going to be diving into that a little bit. Um, to maybe to start us off, uh, if we could have each of you guys just uh, tell a little bit about uh, about yourselves and your companies. I'm sure you can do a much better job of that than I can. So, uh, just based on my screen, Sam, if you want to you want to lead us off, and then we'll go Dan and, and Christian, and uh, and then get to the meat of the conversation.
1: Thanks, Ben, and, uh, and thanks for having me, and thanks to Capital Inc. Um, uh, I, I'm Sam Norton. I'm the president and CEO of Overseas Shipholding Group, also known as OSG. Uh, We are a principally Jones Act operator of tankers and articulated tug barges. Uh, We have uh, vessels that operate on the West Coast, bringing crude oil from Alaska down to the uh, refinery bases in Washington State and California. And we have a principal operation of uh, uh, product tankers, uh, moving refined product from uh, Texas and Louisiana into uh, Florida and the East Coast of the United States. We have some specialized businesses We have three vessels that trade internationally under US flag, under certain transportation department programs. Uh, And we have two shuttle tankers that operate off the FSOs, uh, FPSOs in the Gulf of Mexico. And we have a lightering business that runs uh, lightering operations into the refineries in Delaware Bay.
2: All right, Dan, you're up. All right,
3: <clears throat> thank you, Ben. Good to good to be here with the panel, um, and thanks to the Cabot Link uh, guys for putting this together. Um, should be an interesting chat today. Uh, so I'll speak on behalf of Seabulk Tankers, which is uh, uh, a significant piece of the Sequel Holdings uh, group of companies. Seabulk uh, Tankers uh, is based in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I'm the uh, president and CEO of that business. Uh, we <coughs> uh, have two. Uh, Core elements to our Jones Act tanker um, operations. One is uh, the traditional um, uh, product tankers, MR type, and large ATBs moving both crude and products um, along the Gulf Coast uh, and uh, West Coast. Um, And then we also have a slightly more specialized element uh, to the Jones Act tank vessel business, which is uh, providing services to parcel chemical customers, uh, typically moving. Uh, products from the Gulf Coast chemical uh, uh, operational areas up to the East Coast uh, consumption areas.
0: All right, Mr. O'Neill.
2: All right, Ben, thanks for having me this morning, and thanks to Capital Inc. It's good to see you all. Uh, looking forward to our, our visit today. Uh, I'm Christian O'Neill. I'm the president of the Marine Transportation Group at, at Kirby Corporation uh, on the marine side at Kirby uh, we operate the largest Jones Act tank barge fleet um, with an inland operation running about a thousand and fifty tank barges, two hundred seventy inland towboats, and offshore we operate twenty-nine offshore units, mostly articulated tug barge units. Uh, on the inland side, we ply all the waters uh, in the United States, the Mississippi River, its tributaries, all the way from Brownsville, Texas, to Port St. Joe, Florida. We run up to Chicago, up to Pittsburgh, along the Ohio and the Illinois. In our liquids business, we move everything from the the lightest chemicals, pressurized chemicals, such as propylene, uh, butadiene, things like that, to the heavies of the heavies, asphalt, crude oil, and everything in between on the refined side and the chemical side. Uh, We also operate in several niches. We have an offshore dry cargo business focused on moving coal and sugar. And we have a joint venture with Cooper T. Smith, uh, where we move uh, overweight and over-dimensional uh, heavy lift type cargoes. Uh, that company's called Osprey Line. And uh, that company also pioneered the movement of containers on inland barges. And we own and operate a shipyard uh, in Houston, Texas called San Jack Marine, where we are at present uh, building the first uh, battery powered electric hybrid inland tug. Uh, that's the high points on the marine side. We also have a diesel engine service business. that uh, got, has got some size to it and uh, we focus on repairing marine Diesels and many other uh industrial diesel engines and distribution of diesel engines as well
0: <clears throat> all right uh that is good overview appreciate that um so uh, I'd mentioned that that the, the the market has improved a lot I think that's a combination of supply and demand and I think that's where we'll start um, because ultimately at the end of the day that's what dictates pricing in these uh in these markets they they combination of supply and demand so let's start on the demand side um you know i think clearly uh demand has been pretty good but maybe if we can dive into some of those elements a little bit of, of what is driving demand and uh maybe we could just start with uh from a from a high level perspective saying all right well the, the united states is producing a whole lot more oil than it used to be um and what are the implications for how that oil is moved around the coast and and, and within the inland waterways uh, and and how are you guys thinking about that that is a is a driver for your respective businesses um, going forward and and feel free there it, it, this mm-hmm. is a first first come first serve so yeah. whoever wants to go well I'll, I'll i'll
3: give it a i'll give it a kickoff here ben um uh, you know, I think you're <clears throat> you're talking specifically about um, crude oil production and and how that. So I think uh, Christian may have some inland uh, views on that. The, the pipeline infrastructure is far more um, built out today than it was um, in the last peak of the Jones Act um, uh, demand cycle uh, several years back. So so uh, crude oil production, in my mind at least, is not as much of a driver uh, as it used to be uh, from the demand perspective. Uh, the good news is there are um uh, new uh fuel requirements and i'm sure we'll talk about renewable diesel later uh, uh in this uh in this panel um and and also just general um uh rebound of consumption uh, particularly in the core florida market which is uh, a big market for for tonnage in the Jones Act to sort of rebounding from from the lows uh, of the pandemic. So um, when I think about the demand drivers, uh, it is less about uh, crude, uh, not, not, not that that doesn't have a role. And, and I'm sure others on the panel will will have some views there. But, but a lot of the incremental demand has come interestingly from uh, other parts uh, of the demand structure.
1: And i if i can jump in i would concur with dan's view on that uh, i think one of the most interesting aspects about the u.s energy markets over the last decade has been uh, the much more uh, clearly integrated nature of u.s energy markets with the international markets if you go back 10 years virtually no crude oil was being exported uh, there was an export ban on crude oil in fact until 2016. Uh, LNG was not exported at all uh, what LNG was moving was was in the facilities that were being built were being built for imports. Uh, and even in the product markets, the product markets of U.S. refineries were relatively uh, underrepresented in international product markets. And you fast forward 10 years to today, that's radically changed. I would say somewhere between 30 and 40 percent of all energy produced in the United States today is targeted for exports. Uh, what that means is that. Uh, whereas 10 years ago, producers in, whether it be crude or its product or, or even gas uh, in the United States, when they're looking for markets for outlet, uh, they were much more dependent on Jones Act to be able to deliver uh, the transportation needs to, 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 to make that product uh, get to market. Uh, today, uh, those options are, are far greater than they ever were in the past. And that, and that makes in a funny way that makes the Jones Act, in my mind, uh, competing much more with international markets than it ever did in the past. Uh, you know, Florida is a good example. Florida is an island from an energy point of view. There are no refineries. Uh, there are no real pipelines to, to mention that bring product from uh, the refining centers in the Gulf of Mexico into, into Florida. So everything comes into Florida by sea. Uh, and now uh, that means that that uh, if if somebody if somebody wants to sell a barrel of oil from from Houston refinery into Florida they can also look elsewhere into the international markets and if the price is better in Rotterdam or in in Chile or in Brazil uh, then that barrel is going to move to the better market um, so I think the um the interesting development for our business has been that uh, far greater integration of the energy markets into the international markets and the implications on us in terms of how product moves and how our customers are looking to uh, to, to to retain flexibility to be able to do one or the other import uh, rather to sell domestically or sell internationally uh, and i think that's something to bear watching in the future uh in recent uh months or the last last year uh that uh implication has positively affected the jones act because the international markets have in fact been very robust uh and that makes the jones act look a lot more competitive and i think that's led uh, in my my opinion, that's led to a number of our customers looking to take cover for longer periods to be able to secure that capacity.
2: Christian, yeah, a couple couple thoughts around crude. Uh, you know, I think about crude oil and what it's done for for the Jones Act demand dynamic, and I would agree with uh, with with Dan and Sam that on the offshore side, uh, you saw the peak in the heyday of crude transportation offshore, uh, and with the lifting of the export ban. You do have the uh, the global competitiveness competitiveness of shale tight oil. And I think what you see now is the global super majors highly focused on this highly advantaged crude oil that we have right here at home in America. And I think you're beginning to see less of the world scale deep water, you know, heavy investment in those types of projects, and you see uh, really the flexibility and the affordability of tight oil. So what does that do you know I'll, I'll just put the curvy hat on uh when when you're exploring for tide oil in some of the basins that we service uh it does create inland barge demand and we do see that uh however crude oil is a fickle mistress and it will you know crude will find cargos that move in in a homogeneous uh spec in very large volumes uh at some point you know will likely find a pipeline it just it just the economics do make sense However, we find ourselves on the endless side still having uh, pretty robust pockets of crude oil demand uh, from some places where the pipes haven't quite gotten to. The pipeline infrastructure hasn't been fully developed. Um, I may go beyond your question here and begin to just think about how advantaged we are uh, in the refining and petrochemical complexes to have this much abundant, affordable crude right here in the United States. And so what I think that sets up well for everybody in the Jones Act is not just the physical movement of crude, but just how competitive we are globally in taking that crude and turning it into, you know, all the byproducts, whether it be refined products or some of the feedstocks that go into the chemical markets. And so I think what we really set up is just a really a cost advantaged infrastructure that's gonna be here for a long time that's gonna really help the Jones Act, uh, you know, directly and indirectly. That's That's
0: really, honestly, that's where I was headed or thinking about um, with respect to that question is longer term implications. What does it mean that we have a competitive feedstock for all of the? I mean, nobody uses crude oil by itself. We're all using some derivative of it. And so it's just cheaper uh, to to have that initial crude oil barrel. What does it do for the transportation? And to that end, and, you know, connecting sort of more on the uh, on the positive side of the underlying demand here, um, can we talk a little bit about, or what does that mean in terms of new products that might be moving around? Um, you, you know, here Sammy talked about. I think it was you, you talked about uh, um, biodiesel, which doesn't even come from crude oil in the first place. But how are you seeing the, the what your customers are asking you to do
1: changing? um from a demand perspective um you know there was Dan that brought it up but uh you know I think that's the singular uh, uh change in our markets that we've seen over the last two years uh the advent of renewable diesel and other biofuels but principally renewable diesel you've seen I don't know anywhere between probably 10 and 20 refineries announcing uh changes to the refinery mix to allow them to process the feedstocks that generate renewable diesel. Renewable diesel is super interesting, in my view, because it's diesel at the end of the day. Uh, it can be blended with diesel from one percent to one hundred percent. It can move in the same pipelines. It can move in the same tanks without any special um, cleaning requirements. Uh, it's diesel, and um, the state of California and and some of the other West Coast states are coming on. Washington, Oregon, maybe in the, in the coming years, are providing significant incentives for use or substitution of renewable diesel for the basic diesel in their markets Uh, and that's drawing a lot of the production that's uh, centered in the gulf of mexico where the feedstock sourcing is advantaged Um, the the production that's coming out of the new refineries in the gulf of mexico is is virtually all moving to the west coast that creates tremendous new 10 ton mile demand for jones act vessels because it's a jones act move from a from a u.s port to u.s port even though you transit the panama canal um, and uh, and just to put it in perspective a, a journey on one of our mr tankers from say houston to tampa is a five or six day round voyage uh, into the east coast it's maybe an eight or ten day round voyage if you go to the west coast it's a 30 to 40 day round voyage uh, so every ship that comes out of the traditional trades into florida that goes into the west coast is equivalent of three or four vessels So that's taken a tremendous amount of supply out of the market. Um, I count today somewhere between six and seven ships that are committed to be able to do that trade. Uh, And that could expand uh, another three or four ships, in my view, by the end of 2024. Um, And put that in perspective, there's 43 Jones Act tankers that are involved in deep water trades. Uh, So you're talking close to 20 to 25 percent of the total ocean going tanker fleet could well be uh, taken up in moving uh, renewable diesel and its feedstocks from the Gulf of Mexico to the west coast so I think that's a super exciting development in our market um, and uh, and one that that offers a lot of optimism that the current um, balance in supply and demand that we see that has given rise to the healthier rates that we've been able to obtain in recent months uh, we think that's gonna that's gonna stick for a while as long as that renewable diesel trade is is sustained yeah
3: I, I- a building off a couple of things that so Christian and Sam have said, you know, you have this world, you're sitting, we're sitting at a pretty interesting junction in the Jones Act, the, you've got world class wow. hydrocarbon uh, production in terms of the efficiency of extraction, both on the tide oil and, and the gas side, um, you've got world class facilities along the Gulf Coast, which have had significant inbound investment um, which can uh, are still not fully ramped up, uh, both on the petrochemical and and the straightforward uh, refining elements <laughs> of the business, and you have um, a world where the reliability of supply has been has been more questionable um, than than ever before, with uh, you know the issues in Europe and another and other geopolitical issues that continue to bubble at or near the surface, and so. When, when you engage with the folks that are in the business of either, and this is from my perspective, either in the business of getting parcels of chemicals uh, to uh, end users uh, in the Northeast or, or products into a, a key market like Florida, they they will tell you that rateability and reliability of supply um, uh, and the margins they can achieve, given their, um, their uh, competitive advantage on the Gulf Coast, make the Jones Act the right place to uh, take coverage and um and, and move and, and, and go long and uh, additive to that are the, the new uh, requirements that Sam noted uh, for RD renewable diesel also requires um uh, inputs which effectively is used cooking oil uh, and other soybean related um uh, oils that, that come in and there's there's cargoes of that that we now handle coming southbound. So we're also starting, when you say, what are your, our customers asking of us? They're asking us to do more with what we have, go further, um, be more flexible. And, and they are definitely taking a much longer view given the broad uh, in, instability of or, or le- recognition of supply chain issues that were both COVID related and then since COVID, I think more geopolitical related. Um, and it's creating a very good atmosphere when we're engaging in uh, in uh, pricing and term. And, um,
2: yeah, I'll just comment briefly. They they covered that quite well. Uh, you know, I think what we're seeing, you know, at Kirby is, you know, you're seeing a growing emerging market in and around biodiesel and renewable diesel. Um, you know, it's a cargo we're moving. And on top of that, the feedstocks that go into it that'll come out of the Midwest will be a tremendous opportunity for us on the inland side. Uh, the, those, those barrels of soybean oil and feedstock, we'll see the Gulf Coast refining complex to be processed, and then hopefully put on an MR that one of these fine gentlemen operate and head through the Panama Canal to the West Coast and uh, complete the circle. But it is absolutely a demand driver. Uh, it is still the early innings, but I think we're all moving cargos today. Uh, it, it'll really be interesting to see, you know, where it grows. Uh, you know, California is where you can get the most money for a gallon of renewable diesel today. So the the, the 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 diesel that is produced is is seeking that market but as uh as more of it comes online and it becomes more competitive uh you know there, there will be some other states and some other places where it'll seek you know the barrel will seek that market as well um it's exciting uh we actually have several biodiesel trials going on at Kirby we've been operating some inland tugs on on uh B20 um you know, for over a year now and uh, working in conjunction with the global super major. And we're also running an offshore unit on the West Coast uh, with the B20 blend. And so it'll also be interesting to see where it goes in the marine fuel space. And what we can do as operators to to reduce our carbon footprint and mix it into our own, our own uh, operations and see what that does to drive demand as well. As you know, there's a significant marine fuel distribution network that um, you know, Kirby participates in uh, bunkering ships, um, transporting uh, resupply of, of of diesel into oil, and it'll be interesting to see how renewable and bio plays a role in all of that. I think what you see now is some of the capacity that's offline, refining capacity. If you just want to think about, you know, the whole the whole apple pie uh, today, you have several major refineries that are uh, being retrofitted to to produce renewable or biodiesel and it'll be nice to see that investment come online in the next few years because that that will actually be a very you know um concrete uh definitive new new demand coming back online from refineries that that went out of service so those will be new barrels to the market and that should help demand
0: all right that's uh fantastic um, I want to finish up, just keeping in mind that it, really half the story here, at least half the story, is supply. So I don't want to short that. But um, just the last little bit on demand. Um, you know, I, I think we've talked about the positives. The negatives are, you know, increasingly people are driving electric vehicles. So what does that do to demand, or how you're thinking about demand going forward? And then, and then from a more near-term perspective. Does you know a, a U.S. recession keep you up at night, or or is that something that you feel like it, you're pretty well insulated against? Maybe we'll go in reverse order this
2: time. We'll go, we'll start with you, Christian, since you've been last so far. Yeah. So I I get the EV question. Yeah, Thank exactly. no. <laughs> so I, I do have a a view. Uh, here here is the good news. Uh, EVs will will penetrate the market. Uh, they are coming. Uh, I haven't bought one yet, but they're intriguing to me. Um, however, I, I, do, I do know that demand for diesel and jet fuel in the out years isn't going away. And if you wanna squeeze the diesel and jet fuel out of barrel of crude, you gotta put the whole barrel of crude into the refinery. So you're still gonna make gasoline, or maybe you can t- tweak your, your refinery to produce some other intermediates that'll seek markets uh, globally. Uh, gasoline will find those markets. I- I'm confident of that. In some of these, you know, growing burgeoning uh, economies and developing countries, um, you know, I also will tell you, for every EV that's built, you still need a console made out of plastic, uh, tires made out of carbon black, uh, upholstery and seats made out of, you know, poly polyethylene benzene or or other derivatives of chemicals, and so. For every EV that's built, including some of the components that go into the battery, uh, you're going to see demand from petrochemical and petroleum-related products. But I really do think, in my mind, the thesis, you know, goes to that you have to consume that whole barrel of oil still to squeeze the diesel in the jet. And I'm pretty sure that those those cargoes are going to remain pretty resilient, uh, well past perhaps you know whatever demand destruction we, we see in gas, gasoline. But uh, you know we'll see, we'll see how it all plays out. Um, a lot of my friends here in Texas still drive big diesel trucks. Uh, you know, a few of them, a few of them do have EVs, and uh, that's great. But uh, you know we'll see where it goes. But I, I actually think that the thesis is, you know, is not as as dire as 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 once many people thought when you consider that you still got to consume the barrel of crude.
0: Right. Any Sam or Danny, either of you guys. anything to add to that or uh well actually real quick are you concerned about uh are you concerned about a recession are you not too concerned about a recession
3: yeah i i say ben that maybe a recession is more of a near-term concern just from the demand destruction perspective than evs um and uh the talking heads will go between a soft and a hard landing or a no landing. And a, I think no one really knows. I, it's, it's, we, we sit in Florida, as does Sam, which is a big market for the, the Blue Water assets and the Jones Act. <clears throat> um, and for every EV, uh, just building on Christian's comment that I see, I see two or three, you know, Dodge Rams or equivalents that are, you know, not doing the speed limit. They're doing 50 miles an hour over it. So no one's worried about uh, cafe, uh standards or or miles per gallon in this state and there is a political element to this uh with um which interestingly when you look at it means more fuel keeps running into florida and more renewable diesel keeps running into california these are good things for the jones act so i would be more concerned about a recession than uh uh, any uh change in uh, consumption patterns per se
2: okay
1: yeah, I would even take a little bit more optimistic view from OSG's perspective. Uh, yeah, I, I concur. Um, I, I think electric vehicle penetration will be uh, visible over the next decade, uh, but most cars are on the road for 10 to 20 years. Uh, I think the penetration of electric vehicles to date uh, nationally is like 5%. Uh, so you're going to still have a pretty well-established uh, consumer base and um, the jet and the diesel as Christian has uh, alluded to is, is much harder to uh, to produce alternative fuels or much more expensive to produce those alternative fuels. And even if you do, those still have to move. Um, so I, I don't really see that as a near-term issue. Uh, and from a recession point of view, I think our business right now is pretty well insulated from a, from a recession. Uh, we have pretty good coverage on most of our ships and uh, and there doesn't seem to be any any real drop-off in, in in visible demand, little bits and pieces here maybe, uh, but nothing like we saw during the pandemic. I mean, the pandemic was really, you know, once in a, a hundred year storm, uh, we saw you know, con- consumption levels dropping 30, 40, 50%. Uh, and that just was devastating to anyone that's involved in, in the refining or distribution or sale of petro- petrochemicals and, and hydrocarbons, uh, including uh, the shipping industries um we don't see anything like that coming back again uh absent another you know pandemic or that sort of thing uh, recession maybe maybe reduces demand on the margins but uh, we certainly don't see anything like that today
0: right well uh let's shift to supply and i'm going to try to crunch some stuff together here just so that we uh we don't run out of time but uh first i think it's important that we categorize sort of where we stand with respect to Uh, freight rates, vessel utilization, returns on assets, because ultimately when those things get high, returns get high, freight rates are high, utilization's high, uh, that's when you begin to see ordering. But tying this to sort of a a two-part question here, I think what there were something like 22 tank barges ordered all of last year, lowest ever, ever. And I believe there is no I know there are no um, MR tankers on order, and I believe there are no ATBs on order either. So we're in a place where unprecedented times in terms of nobody's ordering anything. You know, again, tying that to where freight rates are at the moment. I mean, is that clearly we've gone through bad time? Things are a little bit better. Uh, how are you? How are you thinking about that? Uh, that dynamic between returns
2: and and and, and capital deployment. Anybody. I'll jump in on the inland side first, and then we can talk a little bit of offshore. So today, if you wanted to build a homogenous 30,000 barrel tank barge with the price of plate steel, where it still is today, even though it's come down a little. And keep in mind, it's it's, it's a solid 200 uh, percent inflation inflated from where it was a couple years ago. You're talking about a four million dollar plain vanilla barge. The economics don't work, even at today's rates, which are which are getting quite quite nice and continue to increase and rise. Uh, couple that with the fact that if you're going to build a new towboat in this market, you're going to have to put tier four engines in it unless you laid a keel a long time ago. And almost those keels have been consumed and built out. So <laughs> you're now facing a four million dollar inland tank barge coupled with a an inland tug that you're going to have to put tier four engines in, which that engine package is going to cost you know short of a million dollars more than than a, a tier 3 sister sister vessel so you got a ways to go still in the inland market to get to the point where you can justify new construction and get uh, you know for those companies that are disciplined and care about a return on capital and operate that way uh, you're a long way i would tell you rough rough numbers 30 to 40% uh, from current rates to where you need to get to justify you know building that inland unit so that should keep a cap on supply here for a while uh rates the rate environment is quite good uh we we continue to see momentum uh it has not plateaued um you know we'll see where that goes and uh we'll we'll enjoy it while we can um but it is very hard to see where the supply side you know could screw up this you know, this this run, uh, at least in the shorter run, very possibly in the longer run, you know, lead time on an inland tank barge is about, you know, nine months to a year. Uh, but to your point, there's nothing in the order book today. Um, it's pretty unprecedented to your point, especially in the inland yards. You do see some hopper barge construction, so the shipyards are, are able to stay, you know, stay in business, and there's some demand around the dry cargo, but we do not see it in the tank barge uh, side on the inside. I'll touch briefly on the offshore side, then let these gentlemen weigh in. Very similar economics on the offshore side. I live in the ATB world, you know, not the MR world. So from an ATB, you know, new construction perspective, uh, you're you're still a pretty good ways away from justifying new new construction at, at current ATB tank barge rates, even though those are also rising nicely and headed in a very good, very good trend. Uh but I, I think what you stated at the beginning is right. Your supposition that, you know, the discipliner, if you're gonna want a disciplined return on capital, it's 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 gonna take a little while for the rates to get to where they are, mainly because of inflation and what this hyperinflation has done to plate steel, electronics, uh paint. Uh my God, uh you know, we get a really good deal at, at paint at Kirby and you know, I'm I'm paying 25% more for paint than I was a year ago. Wire lines 41%, other rigging 90%, oil filters 123%, uh, communication and radars 172%. So hyperinflation is real. The inflation around what it costs to build the type of equipment we operate is real. So I, I think it will keep a cap on the supply side here for a while.
1: Maybe I can jump in and and echo some of Christian's comments by adding that uh, for deep water vessels, tankers, MR tankers, um, the regulatory environment also adds a really large uh, question mark to any decision to try and make the kind of capital investment that's required for an MR tanker. Um, MR tankers are going to be subjected uh, to uh, IMO rules, uh, most notably the carbon intensity index, which imposes uh, ever tightening regulations on the carbon, uh, greenhouse gas emissions that your ship is going to be able to live within. Uh, given the existing propulsive systems, nothing out there right now meets those requirements when you're taking a 20 to 40 year timeline in terms of what, what a, a Jones Act asset is likely gonna have to be able to, uh, to survive in order to make the kinds of returns that, that are necessary. Um, and then on top of that, um, you touched on it earlier if you take a 40-year timeline what does the demand side look like in 40 years uh, maybe gasoline demand into Florida is halved or 75 percent lower and then therefore the demand for that kind of transportation doesn't exist anymore so I put it all under the rubric of obsolescence risk is uh, as great if not greater than any time in history when looking at technology and equipment and um unless the customers are willing to absorb that obsolescent risk. I don't see many, uh, if any, owners uh, willing to take that kind of big capital bet on what the future will look like. Uh, it, it, you may see new building in, um, in the articulated tug barge uh, sector. Uh, first of all, there are more yards, and maybe Dan can talk about yard availability, uh, but there are more yards around the country that can build ATBs as opposed to pure tankers. Uh, so there's a little bit more capacity for doing that Uh, but the other optionality that exists is the tugs are not subject to CII or at least not currently subject to CII Uh, and so you could imagine yourself building a barge uh, putting a tug in that might run you another whatever eight or ten years and maybe you find some other uh, use for that and maybe when new technology emerges for how propulsive systems for deep water vessels um, are are going to be determined Uh, maybe in 10 years or 15 years, you would build that new tug to be able to continue to barge for another 20 or 30 years. Um, So I'm not saying there's not going to be any new building. uh, But I would be shocked if you see any kind of tanker new building in the next uh, four or five years uh, until and unless there's a there's a resounding uh, conclusion as to what the propulsive systems of the future look like. Um, And you might see some ATVs, but not a lot, in my view.
3: Yeah. Anything? Like that. I think you guys covered the capital side really well. I think the other thing that where you know you rates have to move not just to just to get back to replacement cost economics, but you know <clears throat> versus where people were happy and excited, and, and, and I'm just going to talk about MR tankers for a moment here in the seventy thousand dollar range range uh, five seven years ago. Um, you know your operating costs today are materially higher, both. Uh, uh, crew and uh, all the, the, the comments Christian made about uh, oil filters. It, it all adds up your your regulatory dry dockings. So your margin is, is actually down on the same rates that everyone was excited about. So the rates really have um, <clears throat> to get to the sort of the marginal cost of replacement returns. It has a ways to go. And part of that includes the, the underlying operating cost uh, inflation that we've all we've all been seeing so that's just additive to the the, the rest of uh, what was covered here
0: so uh so supply doesn't seem like it's going to be a problem for a while uh demand sounds like it's pretty good um without a whole lot that can be a whole lot of holes that can be poked into that uh dynamic um outside of Black Swan event risk is there is there anything standing in the way of a multi year cycle here um, that, that you guys can think of or, or are you you're
1: not losing sleep over really anything right now? <laughs> There's always reasons to lose sleep, Ben, but uh, I think the uh, the economic fundamentals that you uh, referred to are as positive as, as they have been in a long time. Uh, and we see this uh, cycle as having legs. Uh, you can, you know, shipping is has a way of delivering uh, black swans all the time. Uh, so I don't I don't sit out there and say nothing can can hurt our business. But uh, as I said, uh, I, I think we're as confident as we have been in a long time that this this particular market has strength, and uh, and we think that's beneficial for our business.
2: Yeah, I'll give you a a, a quick thought on on black swans and just the resiliency of the, these businesses. So. What do we contend with every day operating these companies? Well, we've got weather risk. We've got hurricanes. We've got ice storms most recently that has damaged the chemical and refining infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico impacted demand. Uh, we got through the pandemic uh, and, and battled Covid. we We're still in a challenged labor market, I think, you know, kind of across all of our companies, but we're we're all figuring out ways to to navigate that and attract the mariner back to the industry um but we we have weathered uh many a many a black swan event uh, you know it's never fun but we all have our playbooks and and you know have survived them uh it is hard to envision something as as cataclysmic as covid you know i guess a really deep 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 recession would would be a major concern but again we we would we would know how to navigate that and i think the supply side that we referenced earlier would 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 help navigate that, but uh, it's it's hard to really, you know, again to Sam's point, I think if you're in this business, you wake up paranoid and and hungry and and you know resilient. It, it, you just have to be to do what we do, and uh, nothing nothing in the windshield, but none of us ever take that for granted. That's for sure. Yeah, it's it's a little scary. Uh...
0: When it seems like everything's going right, <laughs> sometimes um, we—I've got the two-minute warning here. Um, but uh, I, just lastly, and I, I know that it's going to be discussed in other panels, so I don't want to belabor it. But are you guys seeing any regulatory risk, really, that that is a, uh, unusual or more than it was, or or anything else that uh, might, might put some of this Jones Act dynamic at risk? And again, we've got one minute, so anybody that wants to go.
2: Can I touch on ballast water treatment? Sure. Go, go ballast water. So uh, what you're seeing in our ATV market is a regulatory demand to, it's really created a retrofit problem dilemma for a lot of owners. And it's a high capital uh, and a bit of a tough thing because you're having to re-engineer equipment that was built with a lot of stuff on deck and then figure out how to put a ballast water treatment module. It's It's more complicated than it sounds. The only positive that comes out of that, it is pushing it is pushing tonnage out out of the business. Uh, you know, there, there have been multiple uh, occasions recently where uh, units have come in for their ballast water retrofit. And by the time the economics are done and the scope of work is done at the shipyard, we've seen some tonnage, uh, you know, retire. And so I think ballast water treatment is something from a regulatory perspective to keep an eye on. I'm talking about, you know, sort of the ATB market that I that I'm operating in or our, our Kirby is operating in. Uh, but I will touch on that as just that's just something to keep in mind and watch. And it's dynamic. There's a lot of units coming up for their, their required ballast water treatment shipyards. Uh, fortunately, we're we're through almost all of ours. We have five left. Uh, and and those will mostly happen in this year, and it will impact the year. It's it's a it's a expensive long shipyard to get it done. So that is a, a headwind uh, for sure in a cost, uh, but we're also seeing it, it also helps shrink the tonnage. Right. Well, I, I'm being told that we're out of time um,
0: and uh, get, being given the hook, but uh, how about this? Yes or no, do you think there's regulatory risk? Sam, yes or no, binary?
1: I think CII is something oh, that- that's yes, yes or no, Sam. Yes, yes, <laughs> CII. Dan?
3: Uh, yes, but we'll manage
0: okay.
1: it.
3: <laughs> I
0: hate to cut you off, but I'm being cut off. I really, really appreciate it, guys. I appreciate you taking the time, spending it with me, and and uh, I appreciate the Capital Link, guys, for
2: asking me to do it. So,
0: Good day. All Thank right. Thank you.